Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, reading today from the Sovereignty Messages of Charles Spurgeon. He's talking now about the perseverance of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. He takes a passage from Job that says, The righteous shall hold on his way. Let me read just the last little paragraph from part one as we go to part two and finish this message for today. Thus has our Savior declared, as plainly as words possibly can express it, that those who are his people possess eternal life within themselves and shall not perish, but shall enter into everlasting felicity. The righteous shall hold on his way. A very blessed argument for the safety of the believer is found in our Lord's intercession. You need not turn to the passage, for you know it well, which shows the connection between the living intercession of Christ and the perseverance of his people. It says, Wherefore also he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Hebrews seven twenty-five. Our Lord is not dead. He has risen. He has gone up into the glory, and now, before the eternal throne, he pleads the merit of his perfect work. And has, as he pleads there for all his people whose names are written on his heart, as the names of Israel were written on the jeweled breastplate of the high priest, his intercession saves his people to the uttermost. If you'd like an illustration of it, you must turn to the case of Peter which is recorded in Luke 22:31 where our Lord said Simon Simon behold Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not and when thou art converted strengthen thy brethren the intercession of Christ does not save his people from being tried and tempted and tossed up and down like wheat in a sieve it does not save them even from a measure of sin and sorrow, but it does save them from total apostasy. Peter was kept, and though he denied his master, yet it was an exception to the great rule of his life. By grace he did hold on his way, because not only then, but many a time beside, and though he sinned, he had an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. If you desire to know how Jesus pleads, read at your leisure at home that wonderful 17th chapter of John, the Lord's Prayer. What a prayer it is. He says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas was lost. But he was only given to Christ as an apostle, not as one of his sheep. He had a temporary faith, maintained a temporary profession, but he never had eternal life, or he would have lived on. Those groans and cries of the Savior, which accompanied his pleadings in Gethsemane, were heard in heaven and answered, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, the Lord does keep them by his word and spirit, and will keep them. 
If the prayer of Christ in Gethsemane was answered, how much more that which now goeth up from the eternal throne itself. It says, with cries and tears, he offered up his humble suit below. But with authority, he asks, enthroned in glory now, for all that come to God by him, salvation he demands, points to their names upon his breast, and spreads his wounded hands. Ah, uh, if my Lord Jesus pleads for me, I cannot be afraid of anything of hell. Uh, that living intercessory voice has power to keep thee, and so hath the living Lord himself. For he hath said, I will never leave you, and because I live, you shall live also. John fourteen nineteen. Now for a fourth argument. We gather sure confidence of the perseverance of the saints from the character and work of Christ. I will say little about that, for I trust my Lord is so well known to you that he needeth no word of commendation from me to you. But if you know him, you will say what the apostle does in 2 Timothy 1.12. I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He did not say, I know in whom, in whom I have believed, as most people quote it, but I know whom I have believed. He knew Jesus. He knew his heart and his faithfulness. He knew his atonement and its power. He knew his intercession and its might. And he committed his soul to Jesus by an act of faith. And he felt secure. My Lord is so excellent in all things that I need give you but one glimpse of his character. And you will see what he was when he dwelt here among men. At the commencement of John 13, we read, Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. If he had not loved his disciples to the end, when here, we might conclude that he was changeable now, as then. But if he loved his chosen to the end, while yet in his humiliation below, it brings us the sweet and blessed confidence that now he is in heaven, he will love to the end all those who confide in him. Fifthly, we infer the perseverance of the saints from the temper of the covenant of grace. Would you like to read it for yourselves? If so, turn to the Old Testament, Jeremiah 32. And there you will find the covenant of grace set forth at some length. We shall only be able to read the 40th verse. Quote, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. End of quote. He will not depart from them, and they shall not depart from him. What can be a grander assurance of their perseverance, even to the end. Now, that this is the covenant of grace under which we live is clear from the epistle to the Hebrews. For the apostle, in the eighth chapter, 
quotes that passage to this very end. The question runs thus, quote, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. The Old Covenant had an if in it, and so it suffered shipwreck. It was, if you will be obedient, then you shall be blessed. And hence there came a failure on man's part, and the whole covenant ended in disaster. It was the covenant of works, and under it we were in bondage, until we were delivered from it and introduced to the covenant of grace, which has no if in it, but runs upon the strain of promise. It is, I will and you shall, all the way through. I will be your God. You shall be my people. Glory be to God. This covenant will never pass away. For see how the Lord declares its enduring character in the book of Isaiah. 54.10 For the mountains shall depart, the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall my covenant of peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath the mercy on thee. Again in Isaiah 55, verse 3, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. The idea of falling utterly away from grace is a relic of the old legal spirit. It's a going away from grace to come under law again. And I charge you who have once been manumitted slaves and have had the fetters of legal bondage struck from off your hands, never consent to wear those bonds again. Christ has saved you, if indeed you are believers in him, and he has not saved you for a week, or a month, or a quarter, or a year, or twenty years. But he has given to you eternal life, and you shall never perish. Neither shall any pluck you out of his hands. Rejoice ye in this blessed covenant of grace. The sixth most forcible argument is drawn from the faithfulness of God. Look at Romans 11.29. What saith the apostle there, speaking by the Holy Ghost? For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, which means that he does not give life and pardon to a man and, and call him by grace and afterwards repent of what he had done and withdraw the good things which he has bestowed. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. When he putteth forth his hand to save, he doth not withdraw it till the work is accomplished. His word is, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed, Malachi 3, 6. The strength of Israel will not lie, nor repent, 1 Samuel fifteen, twenty-nine. The apostle would have us ground our confidence of, of uh, 
person, nor principalities, nor, nor things present nor, present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the same manner, the apostle writes in Philippians 1.6, Being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I cannot stay to mention the many other scriptures in which what has been done is made an argument that the work shall be completed, but it is after the manner of the Lord to go through with whatever he undertakes. He will give grace and glory and perfect that which concerneth us. One marvelous privilege which has been bestowed upon us is of peculiar significance. We are one with Christ by close, vital, spiritual union. We are taught of the Spirit that we enjoy a marriage union with Christ Jesus our Lord. Shall that union be dissolved? We are married to Him. Has He ever given a bill of divorce? There never has been such a case as the heavenly bridegroom divorcing from his heart a chosen soul to whom he has been united in the bonds of grace. Listen to these words from the prophecy of Hosea 2, 19 and 20. And I will betroth thee unto me for ever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know the Lord. This marvelous union is set forth by the figure of the head and the body. We are members of the body of Christ. Do the members of his body rot away? Is Christ amputated? Is he fitted with new limbs as old ones are lost? Nay, being members of this body, we shall not be divided from him. He that is joined unto the Lord, says the apostle, is one spirit. And if we are made one spirit with Christ, that mysterious union does not allow of the supposition of a separation. The Lord has wrought another great work upon us, for he has sealed us by the Holy Spirit. The possession of the Holy Ghost is the divine seal, which sooner or later is set upon all the chosen. There are many passages in which that seal is spoken of and is described as being an earnest, an earnest of the inheritance. But how an earnest, if, if after receiving it, we do not attain the purchased possession? Think over the exceedingly weighty words of the apostle, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Now, he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. But to the same effect, the Holy Spirit speaks in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Beloved, we feel certain that if the Spirit of God dwelleth in us, he that raised up Jesus from the dead will keep our souls and will also quicken our mortal bodies 
and present us complete before the glory of his face at the last. And so we sum up the argument with the confident expression of the apostle when he said in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Roman numeral 2 in the message, how shall we, quote, improve the doctrine practically? That means to expand it, not to make it better, but to make it understandable to us. The first improvement is for encouragement to the man who is on the road to heaven. The righteous shall hold his way. If I had to take a very long journey, say from London to, to John O'Groats, with my poor tottering limbs to carry me, and such a weight to carry too, I might begin to despair. Indeed, the very first day's walking would knock me out, but if I had a divine assurance unmistakably saying, you will hold on your way, you will get to your journeys, and I feel that I would brace myself up to achieve the task. One might hardly undertake a difficult journey if he did not believe he could finish it. But the sweet assurance that we shall reach our home makes us pluck up courage. The weather is wet, rainy, blusterous, but we must keep on, for the end is sure. Oh, the road is very rough and runs uphill and down dale. We pant for breath, our limbs are aching, but as we shall get to our journey's end, we push on. We're ready to creep into some cottage and lie down to die of weariness, saying, I, I'll never accomplish my task. But the confidence which we have received sets us on our feet, and off we go again. To the right-hearted man, the assurance of success is the best stimulus for labor. If it be so, that I shall overcome the world, that I shall conquer sin, that I shall not be an apostate, that I shall not give up my faith, that I shall not fling away my shield, that I shall come home a conqueror, then I will play the man and fight like a hero. This is one of the reasons why British troops have so often won the fight, because the drummer boys did not know how to beat a retreat, and the rank and file did not believe in the possibility of a defeat. They were beaten oftentimes by the French, so the French tell us, but they would not believe it and therefore would not run away. They felt like winning. And so they stood like solid rocks amidst the dreary artillery of the foe until victory was declared on their side. Brethren, we shall do the same if we realize that we are preserved in Jesus Christ, kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Every true believer shall be a conqueror, and hence the reason for warring a good warfare. There is laid up for us in heaven a crown of life that fadeth not away. The crown is laid up for us, for us, and not for chance comers. The crown reserved for me is, is such that no one else can wear it. And if it be so, then I will battle and strive to the end, until the last enemy is overcome and death itself is dead. Another improvement is this. What an encouragement this is to sinners who desire salvation. It should lead them to come and receive it with grateful delight. Those who deny this doctrine offer sinners a poor 
two-penny, half-penny salvation, not worth having. And it's no marvel that they turn away from it. As the Pope gave England to the Spanish king, if he could get it, so do they prefer Christ's salvation, if a man will deserve it, by his own faithfulness. According to some, eternal life is given to you, but then it may not be eternal. You may fall from it, and it may last only for a time. When I was a child, I used to trouble myself because I saw some of my young companions who were a little older than myself. When they became apprentices and came to London, they became vicious. I've heard their mother's laments. I've seen their tears about them. I've heard their fathers expressing bitterest sorrow over the boys whom I knew in my class to be quite as good as ever I had been. It used to strike me with horror that I perhaps might sin as they had done. They became Sabbath breakers. In one case, there was a theft from the till to go into Sunday pleasuring. I dreaded the very thought. I desired to maintain an unsullied character. And when I heard that if I gave my heart to Christ, he would keep me, that was the very thing which won me. It seemed to be a celestial life assurance for my character that if I would really trust Christ with myself, he would save me from the errors of youth, preserve me amid the temptations of manhood, keep me to the end. I was charmed with the thought that if I was made righteous by believing in Christ Jesus, I should hold on my way by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that which charmed me in my boyhood is even more attractive to me in middle life. I am happy to preach to you a sure and everlasting salvation. I feel that I have something to bring before you this morning which is worthy of every sinner's eager acceptance. I have neither if nor but, but with which to, to dilute the pure gospel of, of my message. Here it is. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. I dropped a piece of ice on the floor yesterday. I said to one who was in the room, Isn't that a diamond? Ah, he said, You would not leave it on the floor, I warrant you, if it were a diamond of that size. Well, now I have a diamond here. Eternal life. Everlasting life. Methinks you will be in haste to take it up at once. To be saved now to be saved in living, to be saved in dying, to be saved in rising again forever and ever by the eternal power and infinite love of God. Is not this worth having? Grasp at it, poor soul. Thou mayest have it if thou dost but believe in Jesus Christ, or in other words, trust thy soul with him. Deposit thine eternal destiny in this divine bank then thou canst say, I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. The Lord bless you. For Christ's sake. Amen. From the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 23. Also from the, what shall I say, the... Uh, Puritan hard drive. Uh, you can visit the Puritan hard drive, folks, at Stillwater's Revival Books. That's Puritan Downloads 
Puritanhardrive.com. Ask about the Puritan hard drive. That's where I get so much, not just Spurgeon, but all the Puritans, obviously, and, and a whole bunch more. Would you check them out? You'll be blessed by that. Well, it is, uh, when you are hearing this anyway, Lord willing, hearing it, <laughs> Friday. Oh, we take nothing for granted, folks. It is Friday, I think, April 9, am I right? Okay, good. That means that tomorrow is Saturday, if you're hearing this with me in April of 2021. And tomorrow, I want you to come back and listen to some of the songs. Oh, I won't be singing, but songs that I've I've put together through the years. I have all their words, over a thousand of them that have been special to me. And I'm reading them a few at a time every Saturday. I hope that you'll uh, come back and enjoy that. We've got uh, quite a response to that. I'm, I, I was a little surprised at first, but there are folks out there who love the old, old ways and the old songs. And I don't mean old fashioned because the old wine, you know, it's better. It gets better all the time, doesn't it? Well, um, and then, Lord willing, on the following Monday, we will start Ezekiel Part 2. I'm getting confused with those numbers because I have just finished and am reviewing now Part 3. It's about to be sent to the printer hoping to begin part four in the studies here at my desk, but looking forward the most to part five. So anyway, we've only completed one part for you, but it's all coming, Lord willing, and I hope you'll stay tuned for all that. Just look around the website. You will be amazed, if you haven't yet, to see the kinds, the varieties of things that are here. And then don't forget, well, I'll tell you about Saturday night tomorrow. You come on around and I'll tell you what we do on Saturday night. Got a lot of good stuff going on. I'm so happy to be a part of your life and you to be a part of mine. Stay in touch. And this is, uh, who is this? This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.